All right. Ephesians 2. Let's begin reading once again from verse 1. We covered verses 1 through 3 last week, but verses 1 through 3 set the context for us and what we are going to be talking once again about today. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God... We're going to stop there today. And you're like, how are we ever going to finish Ephesians if we only do two words at a time? That's a very good question. But let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look at your word and we address we we address this this great mystery that is found in these two words. Help us to see our state, our natural state outside of Christ and the extent of that death. That when we see words of how you have intervened and how you have shot light through darkness with yourself, help us to be able to marvel and rejoice in such incredible, marvelous, amazing grace. At the hearts of those this morning who bring in burdens and issues and sin may be able to put it in the light of the great gospel of you saving and regenerating us. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name. But God. Only two words. But is just a conjunction. Sometimes it's just a joke. It connects us, though, to verses 1 through 3. In these two words, but God, this conjunction to God, encompasses for us the, the grand scope of the whole entire gospel message. It also encompasses for us the whole scope of salvation history. That this is what God has done. God's intervention. It shows us that something totally outside of us is what we needed to overcome the issue of death. And as we continue to read in the next coming weeks through Ephesians 2, we will see how Paul unpacks the meaning of this intervention. 
But today, we are going to look at these two words in that large scope. The general overview of but God. There's a charge against Christianity, and it's, and it's been there for, for years, and it's being ramped up even now in, in our day, is that Christianity and Christian preaching cannot and does not help man in their everyday life, and cannot. That, that Christianity is, is just a pie-in-the-sky religion, as it was put in the first century, or not the first century, but the beginning of the last century, that it is just an opiate for the masses. That it is unable to fix people's problems. But in fact, nowadays, we see the blame being put upon Christianity that it is the root of all racism, hatred, intolerance, and even social justice, social injustice. And those who study church history know the failures of the church and know that we do and have taken part in such sinful things, and yet we are guilty of those. But the accusation that Christianity does not help man in their everyday problem, this accusation of being just a pie-in-the-sky religion is completely unfounded. And I would dare to say, I would dare to say that there is not an answer in this world or a truth that does not come from the Scripture alone. Yet when the church has strayed from the gospel message, it is where we have failed. When we stray from the, from the but God of the message, we fail. We flounder. We we seek to assert and work of our own desires, and we, see, we try to conjure up of our own doing. And we call it different names, we call them ministries, we call them churches, we call them parachurch ministries. But when we stray from the but God, we miss the entirety of the gospel. We miss the joy of the gospel. So as we have been talking about in these first three verses, mankind is dead. Reveals that, that you cannot begin to fix the problems in yourself or in mankind unless you know the beginning issue, the root issue, the state of all mankind that is outside of Jesus Christ. The world the world believes that man is good. That's their, that's their presupposition. That's where they stand. That, that man is good. And with the right instruction, and with the right social construct, with the right freedoms or controls over, then man will flourish, and man then will eventually evolve and make the right decision. This is what's taught in our culture. This is what's taught in our schools. Kenny. Just kidding. This is what's taught in our schools. This is, what, this is what's being advocated, even in Disney. That man will eventually make the right decisions. But the problem is, it's starting with the completely wrong presupposition. That mankind is good when mankind is not. 
That the gospel message starts at this point. That man is fallen. That we are spiritually dead. Workers of iniquity. Stuck in our trespasses and sin. Polluted in our nature. And under the wrath of God. We are under the wrath of God. And yet the same thing over and over, every generation looks at the last generation and says, we can fix their problems with more government or less government, with more education, with more freedom or less freedom, with the right social constructs. And yet... It leads us to the same places of brokenness and sin. And the Bible is clear that man remains unregenerate in their natural state and that evil will continue to run its course. So how has the Bible then answered this question? How has the Bible then answered this question in solving the problem and correcting the problem of the state of man? And it says it right here, but God. Now, churches have offered much in this confusion as well, in this area. They, they give so much false gospel messages that do not lead to transformed lives. This is what we are familiar with. This is what we know. So what then is the Christian message? Well, I want to start with the negative first. What the Christian message is not. First, the Christian message is not patriotism. Now, is it good to be an American? Or at least I know I'm free. Right? Do you all ever have that? You say a line and then a song comes in your head? That is a problem that I have. Is it good? Are we thankful as believers, as Christians, that we are Americans? And should we take part in our society? And should we vote and absolutely be a part? Absolutely. Should there be a pride there? Absolutely. But we must understand that our Christian message is not one of patriotism. It is not one of nationalism. That is not our message. This was the great sin of Israel. This is what Israel did. They believed that their little kingdom in the Middle East was the kingdom of God. And therefore, they shaped and formed God in their own image. And it didn't work out so well for them. This is not our message. Our message is not patriotism. The first, the second one is this, is that the Christian message is not an appeal to courage or heroism or self-sacrifice. And I know that sounds a little contradictory to other things that maybe we've seen in the Scripture, and certainly Scripture does not condemn courage, and it does not condemn self-sacrifice and heroism. But these virtues, these virtues of courage and self-sacrifice, these are virtues that were, that were held up by Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy generally taught this, is that, that evil and wickedness came from the self. But the way to overcome that wickedness was to either gratify that self or flesh or to deny it, 
depending on what camp you walked in, whether it was Aristotle or Socrates. But the Christian message is not one of courage and self-sacrifice. The Christian message instead advocates a, a meekness, a meekness that is true strength, a humility that is true and grace. All of which that are a, a work of the Spirit of God in us. The Christian message is not even our Christian virtues or our Christian principles. Many would teach, and even today, this is what's being preached in pulpits this morning, that the answer to all suffering and evil in this world is to encourage people to put in practice what was taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Things like that. These good virtues to be a better person and to serve humankind and mankind to do good to others, to care for one another. But is this the Christian message? According to Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, this is not the case. For it is impossible for the natural man to do these Christian virtues or to be obedient to Christ from the Sermon on the Mount because they are dead. So what are we doing if we are preaching and teaching to be a certain way when an individual needs regeneration? Sounds good. Sounds right. But what does it lead to? Confusion. Destruction. Failure. Quitting. Ones who thought they believed the Gospel but in turn have believed a false Gospel altogether. Any teaching that asks a man to stand up and put into practice the good deeds and obedience to the Scripture without Gospel regeneration is simply anti-Gospel and does nothing but to serve and confuse, serve others to confuse them, to lead them to hurt and to lead them away from the church. It fails to realize the basic Christian teaching of the state of mankind. This is why we, when we gather on Sunday mornings, we don't talk about the news. We don't talk about politics. I mean, we do it together and stuff like that. We, you know, that's cool. But we don't get up, we don't preach those things because the answer is not making a better government. The answer is not if we can get more education. The answer is is not just teaching people to be a better person, to make the right choices. The answer is the state of man is dead outside of Christ. That the answer is not in man. To sum it up like this, that the Christian message to the world is this. You are dead in your sin and you are under the wrath of God. You are under the wrath of God unless you repent. Unless you repent and trust in Christ and believe in Christ. The Christian message is what God has done, not what man has done. Now what has God done about the state of death 
of mankind. Well, we've already been hinting at the first one. That's the particular message of the Christian, of the Christian message. I want to get to that in just a second. But he's also done something else in a general way. In a general way, God has restrained evil. God is controlling evil. The Bible reveals to us from Romans 13 that the reason why God has established nations, the reason why God has established governments and kings and emperors and presidents is that that would keep evil in the check. I mean, it wouldn't take long for us to have a conversation here to think about what this world would look like without government. What would our world look like? What, what would our city look like if our police department decided to take the week off? They just put it on Facebook. Hey, we're going to Hilton Head for the week. All of us. What would Statesboro turn into? The Wild West. And sometimes, as Romans 1 tells us, is sometimes God loosens up that restraint on evil. And when he does that, when he, when he does that, it gives us a glimpse of the horror of what we are capable of doing to ourselves. History shows that. That's why we say that those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. The Holocaust wasn't something new of the, of, the, of the 20th century. God restrains evil. And the particular message of the gospel is what we've been talking about, is that God delivers us from this judgment. And that is, He has, he has intervened in such a way, the, the, the but God, in such a way that we could be delivered from the consequences of that evil. The result is that God has done something through His Son, Jesus Christ, and has accomplished salvation. That those, us, who once were at the center of such evil, can now be taken out of it and delivered from the power and the control of Satan to now to God. To be made citizens of a new kingdom ones that are not of this world, to have a new life, to be given a new name, to be given a new position, to be given a new purpose, to be given a new destination, and to put us in a new family. That God, by His sovereign grace, has intervened, intervened on our behalf to take once what's dead, an enemy, and redeem it, reconcile it, justify, save, elect, and adopt. Brothers and sisters, this is what God has been doing. This is what God has been doing since the very beginning. And so I want to take the rest of my, my time this morning, if I have a certain set amount of time, <laughs> and I want us to just to do an overview, a flyover of Scripture about how God has always been accomplishing this. The but God. To show that, that He's not just being reactionary. That this was His sovereign plan from the very beginning. So think with me as we walk through the text. We're going to start right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. 
You don't have to turn there. Genesis chapter 1, because we're going to go pretty quick. Genesis chapter 1, before God, before time, before time, before space, before matter existed, before there was darkness, before there was light, before there was a universe, before there were stars, God existed. And God existed in the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that Trinity, God was perfectly satisfied and joyful in Himself. He was lacking nothing. He was not lonely. He was not bored. But yet God, in wanting to share, wanting to share the joy and the satisfaction it is to know Him, He created. He created a creation that would only be satisfied in Him. So in the beginning, time began. God created the heavens and the earth. He spread out the waters of the earth. He, he put out the darkness by creating the light. He created the seasons, the night and the day, spreading out on earth the land and the waters. He created all the vegetation. Then He made all the animals. Animals of the air, animals of the land. And then God did something even more particular. He created man. And He created man in His own image. And He put them in a garden and gave them dominion over all that He created. And He said, this is good. And then there was the fall. Genesis chapter 3, 45 minutes later. Not literally, okay? I'm not like an uber, super young earth person here. I'm just saying that it wasn't long. Two chapters. Man sinned. Man sinned willfully and defiantly, casting off God's authority for their own self-fulfillment and desires, but to take on death. Shame and guilt then entered into the world in which it's never been. All of creation was fractured and broken at that moment. And in man's shame and guilt, they sought to cover it and hide from God. And doesn't this set up for us and show us that we are no different from Adam and Eve? Doesn't it set up the template by which we sin? and by the which we run from the Lord, and how we have run from the Lord, and how we try to overcome such death. That mankind has always tried to solve their own problem of their spiritual death and shame and guilt. Genesis 3, verse 9, But God called to man and said, Where are you? Yet in this tragedy, this tragedy of sin and the consequences of sin that spiraled everything out of control, we see here that God acted. God acted. God doesn't run. God doesn't hide. God didn't disown them. But God, even now, even now, with death entering the world, He makes a promise and He provides for them. 
A promise, even during the curse in Genesis 3, the promise that was made that through the seed of the woman, one would come to crush the head of the serpent, showing us that the curse of sin would one day be destroyed. And it would be destroyed by the one God provides. We see His provision. That when man ran, man and woman ran from God and hid from God, they sought to cover themselves up, cover their nakedness and their, and their shame by their own doing and sowing fig leaves together. God in His great mercy provided for man, covering them with an animal's sacrifice or animal's hide, showing the first sacrifice that without the remission of blood, man's sin can never be atoned for. That even here, God is acting. God is working. Even here, He is saving, redeeming, and to working to crush the enemy. Not long after this, we, we, we can recall even a whole lot more. Like I said, we got to do a, a flyover real quickly. Sin became rampant and out of control. Mankind spread, and where mankind spread, sin grew and increased as well. Death and the plague of sin all over the earth began to spread like a cancer over healthy cells of a body. Indiscriminate, it controlled the flesh. It blinded. It put people in bondage. And now, just in Genesis chapter 6, God chose to pour out His judgment on creation. And through a worldwide well, uh, our worldwide flood, he would wipe out the corruption of the earth. Yet even in God's choosing to judge earth, God was still doing something else of remarkable mercy and grace. He preserved a small remnant. He preserved a small remnant in Noah and his family. When we get caught up in Noah and the arky arky and the animals came two by two, we get, we get caught up in those, that part and we miss the grace and the mercy that God would even rescue and save and preserve Noah and his family. Grace. Mercy. Genesis 8, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were, were with him in the ark. And God made the wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. In Genesis 12, God furthered his plan and promise and calling an ordinary sinful man like the rest of us to follow him, a man named Abram. What did Abram owe God? Or what did God owe Abram? Who was Abram that God would owe him to choose him? What did Abram deserve from God? The message is clear. God is up to something here. God is up to something. In Genesis 15 and 17, God has a covenant with Abraham. He promises him, Abraham and Sarah, who were barren, unable to have a child, 
He promised them an offspring and that this offspring would be a family and would be a nation and would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. In fact, God has Abram go outside and look up and look at the stars and as, as many stars as you see, Abraham, that's what your family is going to be like. That is my promise to you. That is my covenant with you. And Abraham, being in his 70s, childless, believed God. Believed God. And his belief, his faith, was counted to him as righteousness. What is God doing? What is God doing? In Genesis 16, between 15 and 17, where they have the covenant, we see man. We see the state of man. Sarah and Abram didn't know or didn't know how God was going to fulfill the promise and God was taking his sweet time. They decided, with a really horrible plan, by the way, and will not work, to have a surrogate. A surrogate in Hagar. To have a child outside of the plan. And Abram, who listened to his wife, and gentlemen, there are many times we should listen to our wife, but that is a trap every time. Yeah. Kelly understands. Yeah. It's a trap every time. But that wasn't the promise God made. This promise wasn't going to be fulfilled by human hands or by human, human, human doing. That wasn't the promise God made. But God's plan, but God's plan was not thwarted by man's attempt to accomplish God's will for him. But there would be another. And we know that another. Isaac. Isaac. Abraham was a hundred years old. Have you ever met a hundred year old? A hundred year old man? I have. This guy was in good shape. I just got to stop. This guy was in good shape. He was 104 years old. And we stopped to do, my dad and I, were, we stopped at his house. We were going to do some work. And he's like, how long is it going to take? Uh, probably about 30 minutes to check this and check that. And, and he's like, okay. And he's like, I, I got to go. I'm supposed to see, go, go meet my daughter, go hang out with my daughter for a little bit today. And we were like, oh, okay, where's your daughter? She's like, oh, she's in a nursing home. When you are 104 years old, you have children in their 80s. That's wild to think about. And here's Abraham, 100 years old. Ladies, Sarah was in her 90s, and she conceived. Not by man, but God. God was completely showing all of us and showing them that this promise this promise is not going to be done by human means or human ability. I mean, we, we're talking about everything and biologically was out the window by their, in their hundreds and in their 90s. And even with modern science, as we know, cannot do this. They conceived and had Isaac. And God was not done with Abraham Isaac. And in, in Genesis chapter 22... God asked Abraham to do the unthinkable. 
and that is to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, to offer his son as a sacrifice to God. And we, we know the story that, that, that Abraham this time trusted and believed in the Lord, took his young son, grabbed wood, went up to Mount Moriah, set the altar, and tied his son down to the altar, still believing that God would somehow provide, raise the knife. But God said, Abraham, don't kill your son. I know I know now that you trust me. And the Lord provided a, listen to this, a substitute. Provided a substitute in the place of Isaac. A ram caught in the thicket. And by God's grace, this covenant would continue. This promise would continue in Isaac. We have stories like Jacob and, and Esau. We would, I'd love to spend some time talking about, about Jacob and Esau and, and how God's plan was to use the, the younger over the older. That the older would serve the younger, as it says in Genesis 25, 23. Romans 9 t- packs into that in, in verses 10 through 13. That it wasn't because they were good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue through the younger. Because it's God's will. That God is sovereign. That God is working on His purposes. We can think about the plan that God had for Joseph. Jacob, the son of, of, of uh, Isaac, had 12 sons. Joseph, being one of the younger, was clearly... Joseph's favorite. And the brothers knew that. And in jealousy, they sold him into slavery, lying about his fate to their father. He became a slave to Potiphar. God raised him up in Potiphar's house. He was accused unjustly of sin against Potiphar, thrown in prison, raised again to the position of second highest in the kingdom of Egypt was the greatest nation in the world, next to Pharaoh. And eventually was able to confront his brothers because of famine that God had brought into the land. And we see something very insightful in Genesis 50, verse 20. And Jacob says that what was meant for evil toward me, or Joseph says what was meant for evil, but God meant it all for good to preserve Israel during the famine. So God was still fulfilling his promises. We could talk about the Exodus. We can, we can talk about the Exodus, how God providentially saving, sovereignly saving his, fa- or his people, showing how he was going to deliver his people through the plagues. And then we see the, the Passover. Then God gave the law. After rescuing his people out of Egypt, he gave him the law. Something that seemed to be a burden, an unfair burden placed upon Israel. But what we don't understand is that really in God giving us the law, God was once again being merciful and gracious. Because it shows us how we are to worship God. It reveals God's character to us. It also shows them that they would eventually need a Savior. 
Do we feel and see the story building? Then we can talk about the judges. We can talk about the kings. Then we can talk about the exile. That in the time of the judges, God's own people continually, repeatedly, just like us, would turn from God, spurn from His law, reject God, and turn to other gods, and turn to the comforts of this world. A cycle of bondage. A cycle of being captured by the enemy over and over again. And God in His grace repeatedly would deliver them by sending a judge. In a time of kings, Israel threw off God's authority. Throwing off God's authority as their king. And the prophets. And the prophets. God sent His his prophets to His people and to all the nations to prophesy judgment and mercy and to call the people to repent. And yet they wouldn't repent. And yet God, and yet God, as he says in Isaiah 30, verse 18, but God wants to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for Him. A promise that He would preserve a people for Himself. Now we're covering a lot of history. But God, in the fullness of time, He sent His Son into the world. This is what we celebrate in Christmas. The incarnation, that God intervened of Himself, sending His Son, taking on flesh, becoming like us, knowing our, our weakness and our frailty. In the fullness of time of God's plan, God's plan to accomplish salvation through His Son, that this would be the one, the seed of the woman, that would crush the head of the snake. And we see patterns of this throughout the Bible, or throughout the New Testament and the Gospels. I, I thought about Matthew 19, the rich young man who walked away disappointed because salvation would not come to him because he was more interested in his wealth, knowledge, and external conformity. And the disciples asked that a rich man can't be saved, why? then who has any hope? And what Jesus replies, he says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that it is impossible for man to save themselves rich or poor, religious or non-religious. They are incapable. They are dead in their sins. And no matter how they look in the external, they all need God's grace. Luke 18. But Jesus called them to Him. I love this. Verse 16, But Jesus called them to Him, saying, Let the little children come to Me. Let the little children come to Me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Reveal to us now, how do we enter the kingdom? Humility. Being undone. Being frail. Like a helpless child. And oh, how we can, we can think about the apostles, Peter, James, and John. We're, we're just fishermen. We're just fishermen doing their job. 
doing what they thought God had called them and designed them to be, was to be fishermen and provide for their family. But God, but Jesus called them to be fishers of men. Philip, another, another disciple, was sitting underneath a fig tree. Matthew, a tax collector, living in sin, despised by everyone in, in the world. Jesus said, follow me. Interjected in their lives. And then there's Paul, who once was named Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, top in the class in all things Judaism, zealous for the things of God, sought to destroy the church by terrorizing its followers. But God, in Acts chapter 9, took that terrorist of the church, confronted them on the Damascus Road in his sin and destruction, and he renewed him, and he regenerated him, and he gave that man a new name. He gave that man a new calling. And he gave that man a new mission to go into the world to plant churches. The greatest of all the missionaries who, who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit most of the New Testament, including the what we are studying today. Other places in the New Testament, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God intervened. Romans 6, 17-18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have now become slaves of righteousness. And yet there was another young man who was just living his life according to the way that he wanted. Raised in a good family. Raised to have a certain respect for Christianity. Raised to, to believe in God. But truthfully, that young man was indifferent to the things of God. He had his own plans, he had his own desires, he had his own hopes and wishes and, and what he wanted to do in his life and with his life. But God, but God showed him his sinfulness. God showed him his depravity. God showed him his wickedness. God showed him the stench of his death. But God did not leave him there. God intervened, showed him the treasure and the beauty of Christ, and he brought about repentance and faith by his grace. And that young man is me. And I suspect that most of you have a similar story. But God, by his great grace and mercy and love toward you and me, he has saved you and me. So did we, did we walk all the way through that to show that, that, that with all of our problems and issues that we have brought into this room tonight, that, that God will work those things out for you? And that is certainly a, a good and worthy lesson for us to believe and understand, but that's not the point. The point is that God is sovereign, and God has always been working out His plan to bring about salvation to His people. He's always been working throughout history. 
We are not living in reaction to, but we are living in that story. We are living in the story of those who were helpless, enslaved, in bondage, in a concentration camp of sin and hell. But God. The majesty of these two words tell us such a great story. It's like a, it's like a flashback that, that hits our minds with thousands and thousands of pictures of what we walk through and then what God has done in, in, in your life. It's a flashback of how God has intervened, how God has broke the power of sin and death in your life. It's a reminder that if God had not acted, if God had not intervened, if God had not interjected by His grace, here's a dramatic pause, that if God had not interjected by His grace, we would still be left in our dead sins and we would all suffer his wrath our salvation is not of our works our virtues our character or our by our nature but by God and brothers and sisters in Christ church sovereign grace this is our message this is our 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 message this is the the glorious good news of the message of the gospel God, but God. And we do not want to stray off of that. The warnings that we talked about in the beginning of the the patriotism and the courage and self-sacrifice or even the, the Christian virtues, and those things are all important and true, and we will talk about those as we unpack the text, but the essentials of the gospel message is, but God. And this is also our assurance, by the way. And I'm going to end with this. This is also our assurance. Our assurance is not in what you have done and what you have prayed. Our assurance is that God has done the work, that God has acted. That God alone. That's why I wanted to walk through this. There's, there's not one person, there's not one character in all the Scripture besides Jesus and maybe John the Baptist that from the get-go was just all about being a Jesus follower. Then in of themselves, they have conjured up something that would cause them to love God. It's always been about God's mercy upon them. And He is our assurance. If it's any of us, then we have no assurance, brothers and sisters. We have no assurance that when we go out today and we sin and we fail again, that we have not lost our salvation. But our assurance is in the steadfast work of what Christ has done and that what God has intervened on our behalf. That's what keeps us running back to God. That's what keeps us from trying to put on fig leaves ourselves and be covered by the sacrifice and blood of Christ. And in that, this morning, brothers and sisters, I wanted to give you this overview because I want us to delight in this message. God is not reacting. 
and never has. It has been his sovereign plan from the very beginning. And we are part of that plan. Our church is part of that plan. You, part of this body, is part of that plan. Your salvation is part of that plan. God using you as instruments of grace in our community is part of your plan. To share the gospel with the lost in our community is part of your plan. God using this church to reach the nations is part of that plan. And we joyfully and gloriously get to announce this to the world. But God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sharing with us and helping us see your word. I pray that in our times of response now, we would rejoice in the work that you have accomplished in Christ, knowing that it was not of us, but you. I pray that is, that is what resounds in our hearts and in our minds daily that we delight in that glorious grace that you have given us so freely. I pray that that becomes our, our, our banner in this church. And I pray now as we respond, that you'd help us to be an encouragement, to be true, to be open and honest. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, y'all have probably noticed that um, Pastor Bill is not here today, uh, and and he texted um, Kenny and myself yesterday, and and he had to make a trip down to Ocala to go see his sister. Um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the situation, but you certainly can be in prayer for, for him and his family. Um, his sister hasn't been doing well for a while now, so it's not, this isn't something new, but they, he hasn't visited her in a while. Um, and so I want to pray. So they, she lives in Ocala. She's in a nursing home, and, and, I, and I, I believe that he's, the, um, he's basically the power of attorney over her and, and her situation. And so um, as many of us understand the, the strain sometimes of family relationships and, and, and sometimes brothers and sisters can be nuts, and um, 